With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dr. Jorge Red of Texas Tech University, the host of the channel. Today, we will be talking to John N. Singer, uh, who is an associate professor of sports management in the Department of Health and Kinesiology, as well as associate dean for diversity and inclusion in the College of Education and Human Development at Texas A&M University. John, thank you for being with us. How are you doing today? I'm great, and thank you for having me. Well, we're, you're, you're welcome. Um, before we get to start talking about your new book, which is entitled Race, Sports, and Education, Improving Opportunities and Outcomes for Black Male College Athletes, which is published by Harvard University Press in 2019, uh, how about you taking a few moments to give us a little bit of your own background, your degrees, what type of work you're doing at uh, at A and M, and you know just a little bit of that type of background? Okay, thank you. And just as a quick um, aside, um, the book is actually published through Harvard Education Press, which is a part of the Harvard Publishing Group. So I wanted to make sure. Listeners understood that they're all under one big umbrella, but it's specifically Harvard Education Press, the race and education series. Um, yes. But in terms of uh, introducing myself, well, I was born and raised in southwestern Michigan, um, specifically the small cities of Niles, Dwajak, and Benton Harbor. And, and after high school, I attended Michigan State University, where I graduated with both my master's and my bachelor's degrees. And then in 2002, I earned my, my PhD from the Ohio State University. Okay. So in my current role as a faculty member and associate dean at Texas State University and College Station, Texas, I do research and work around diversity, equity, inclusion, and social justice. Um, Specifically in my, my role as a faculty member as it relates to sport organizations, but then in my role as associate dean as it relates to higher education. Um, so that's what really occupies a lot of my time, energy, and attention these days. Okay. Okay. Thank you for that background. Now, I, I really enjoyed the book, and I think it is a, it's a very timely subject because uh, – there's always been discussions about the issues of 
African-American male athletes, which is what, what you're focusing on, uh, and how they interact with colleges and universities, uh, historically white colleges and universities, and how they inter- interact with those institutions in regards to sport. Obviously, uh, you know, you're at Texas A&M, I'm at Texas Tech. We know uh, what the, uh, the big sports on, on our campuses are. Um, African-American athletes uh, come onto these campuses, many of them uh, with relatively small populations of African-American students. Um, what, is, what are some of the issues that uh, these students, athletes face when they get to a campus like A&M or Texas Tech? Well, <clears throat> you know, many of these athletes, so we have to look, take a step back and oftentimes look at the educational pipeline, right? So what type of schooling and education did these athletes receive in the lead up to their recruitment into these institutions. So that's, that's one of the things we have to think about, but then once they get there, then we have to look at the structural arrangements in such institutions and how they work with athletes from various uh, backgrounds and diverse learning needs, interests, et cetera. Uh, One of the things I talk about in the book uh, is that college sport is this multi-billion dollar entity. And particularly since the integration of black males into this entity, really beginning in the early 1970s, um, it has grown into what we see today as we enter into the third decade of this 21st century, this commercial enterprise with black male males in football and basketball leading, uh, playing the leading role, really, um, with their labor and their mighty presence on these campuses. Um, And so you have these athletically gifted and talented black males who have been given access to these well-resourced, historically white colleges and universities, and the high visibility that comes with it. But One of the challenges is the academic capitalist model that pervades higher education and college sport has contributed greatly to commodification and exploitation of these black males. So in such a market-centric, hyper-commercialized system that is Division I college sport, oftentimes leaders and other powerful decision makers too often make human development ancillary or subordinate to commercial or capital development. Um. And this kind of speaks to that sport impedes perspective that we see in the literature, right? Um, Right. And and you know what? I'm glad that you brought up that particular term because part of what you also do in chapter one of your book is you discuss the question of sport enhances versus sport impedes and how that sort of fits in with this hyper-commercialization of of collegiate sports. So, so talk some more about that particular point. Right. So the sport enhances on the one hand would argue that, you know, both interscholastic and intercollegiate sport provides opportunities 
for these athletes, you know, that perhaps they may might, might not otherwise have. So it provides them access to these institutions of higher education. It provides them a potentially powerful platform to potentially seek an education. It provides them access to social network ties that come with being at a Texas A&M and other Power 5 schools. And so there's a host of benefits that some of my research has revealed athletes in general, but black males in particular, gain from coming to these institutions. So that's the sport enhances. But again, when we talk about the sport impedes perspective, when we think about the preponderance of the athletic activities that these athletes are required to participate in once they reach campus, at the expense of other developmentally useful activities outside of sport, this creates what the literature refers to as opportunity gaps for black athletes and even some of their peers. Now, this is a point um, that came out in the narratives that I feature in this book. And thus, this is a major reason why we should continue to study the circumstances of black male college athletes as we enter into this dec- this third decade of the 21st okay. century. And and that's a very nice transition to chapter 2 where you ask where you bring up some of these some of these issues. Now you, what you do is you interview uh three individuals uh, fairly extensive interviews uh with three individuals in chapter 2. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you were able to get in touch with these interviews interviewees? How do they define education? What were their experiences and were there similarities or differences uh, in regards to their educational experiences? Okay, yeah. So I was very fortunate to connect with these three black males featured in this chapter because of a relationship I had with a black male academic counselor who worked in athletics at this institution where these athletes played football. And see, this counselor had created an academic and life skills program that focused specifically on culturally relevant programming for racial minority athletes at this institution. Once I explained to him the purpose of my research, he identified a group of black male athletes who he thought would be interested in my study. And because these black male athletes respected and had a good relationship with this counselor, they were open to participating in my study and offering me the opportunity to interview them. So, my relationship with this academic counselor helped to build that credibility and rapport with these black male athletes, which is so important when doing this type of research with historically disenfranchised and marginalized groups in educational spaces, such as historically white colleges and universities. Uh, How were there, how did they define education? And did, if, if by their definition of an education, did they, get an education at this institution while they were playing football? Yeah, that's a great question. So these black males certainly realized and acknowledged that there were certain tangible and intangible benefits that they derived from their participation in college sport, from the visibility to the the social network ties, to the opportunities to travel and to interact with people from diverse backgrounds and places, all that stuff they acknowledged contribute to their educational experiences. But from their perspective, 
education extends beyond just going to college and earning a degree. They were clear about that. To them, it involved acquiring a greater knowledge of one's history and who they are, as well as an understanding of other people around you. And, and interestingly, one of these black males in this chapter suggested that education for black male athletes in particular involved not only understanding how to communicate and function in one's own culture and community, so the black community, but also being equipped to communicate and function in the white mainstream world. So in, in other words, I took that to mean that they he was really stressing the need to learn how to code switch in a society, in a world that has historically been rooted in whiteness, um, as critical race theorists would say. Um, could, you, could you give us a definition uh, of code switching? So code switching involves being able to navigate and be your authentic self amongst your peers, amongst your community, amongst your culture, but also going to an environment where perhaps you're not accepted or not as familiar and still communicate and navigate your way successfully through that particular environment. Um, and so there's a lot of talking. I mean, I'm not a, a, a communication scholar that studies code switching, but I've seen in the literature where they talk about how in the workplace, for example, how people of color will adopt certain uh, styles of communication to successfully navigate, you know, this notion of what's considered to be, for example, professional in terms of language and how you speak. Do you use, for example, African-American vernacular versus quote unquote standard English? Um, do you dress a certain type of way uh, to advance in a certain environment? Um, all that stuff kind of becomes a part of what can be considered code switching to navigate successfully through certain environments. Well, and building on that particular point, you also in this chapter talk about the um uh, access discrimination and treatment discrimination. How does that tie in with code switching or some of the points that your the athletes in this chapter brought up? Yeah, so that's a great question. So by definition, if you think of access discrimination, it involves behaviors by people in oftentimes in positions of power, but they don't always have to be in power in, in a position of power to engage in such discrimination, but it really involves behaviors that unjustly prevents members of certain groups from obtaining a job, position, or opportunity. Whereas treatment discrimination occurs when members of a certain group in an organization or setting um, are, are exposed to negative behavior at the hands of people who hold similar or different positions as them, or they may be denied access to certain or fewer growth and development opportunities or resources. So the athletes really talked. I remember it was during the focus group with these particular uh, black male athletes. They brought up the issue of racism in college sport and how, whether it was them specifically or black male or black athletes in general, this racism took the form of being denied access to certain opportunities off the playing field was one of the examples they kind of talked about is that, yes, they're given opportunities to be the star player as a, you know, a running back, a receiver, a cornerback, 
And they even kind of mentioned the quarterback issue, even though we've seen in more recent years the, the success and presence of black quarterbacks in the NFL and in big-time college sport, they still talked about how these institutions are reluctant to provide athletes access to this position because they don't fit the prototype of what a, a quarterback should be, right? Typical quarterback. Exactly. And, and I mean, I think that that's, that's a really uh, critical point to bring up. Uh, when I teach my sports history class, uh, a lot of my students will come up to me and, and they're actually shocked at the fact that uh, for a very long time, up until, as you, as you indicated, the, the early 1970s, uh, the, the notion of a black quarterback in the NFL was not, uh, you know, it, it just didn't seem... It, a lot of people didn't think to believe, seem to believe that it was a possibility that a black man could be the general, the field general, the leader of uh, 10 other players uh, on the football field. And that these individuals, many of whom would be African-American, many of whom would be white, uh, won't, would have followed an African-American uh, quarterback uh, into the, the battle that, that takes on in the gridiron that takes place in the in the gridiron. Yeah, Lamar Jackson of the Baltimore Ravens is is busted up and shattering all those myths and stereotypes, isn't he? He's really defining what it means to quarterback in this day and age, and so very brilliantly. Yes, sir. And, um, let me let me just go back for a second. You know, a, a, again, you, you we talked about access versus treatment discrimination. Two final questions that that I think come from that point or that theme are if uh, dealing in chapter two is how can institutions such as A&M and tech help to change things for African-American male athletes? And number two, what role do individual players or athletes play in their own educational experiences and, and outcomes? Yeah. So one of the concepts that came out of the, this, this case study in chapter two was this notion of institutional integrity where, it's important for these institutions to be true and consistent with what they say on paper, right? So we look at what the NCAA says and we look at the mission statements of these athletic departments at these historically white institutions. They say it's all about the education, you know, the, the old commercial, right? There are over 400,000 athletes and most all of them are going pro in something other than sport. And their college experience provides them preparation for that life after sport. And so institutional integrity is about making sure your stated commitments on paper align with what you do, your actions. And so one of the ways that these athletes felt these institutions could better bring about institutional integrity is one, by committing to hiring more black role models and leadership positions, not only in athletics, so whether it's head coaches, whether it's administrators, whether it's academic support personnel, but also people in positions such as associate deans like myself or faculty who can be great mentors and role models and give these athletes something else to, to strive for beyond sport and play. So that was one of the ways they talked about. Another way they talked about bringing about this institutional integrity was through providing more financial support for athletes and really removing the barriers and restrictions to their opportunities to benefit from their image and likeness. And we see now with the court rulings here in the last several months, 
some potential change on the horizon. But these athletes really pointed out the hypocrisy of the NCAA's uh, rules and policies around this notion of amateurism. They were very, even when I interviewed them while they were playing as as 19 to 22 year olds, and then 15 years later in their adult lives and their careers, when I came back and interviewed them, they still were kind of talking about this myth of amateurism and how it really uh, unjustly uh, works against black male athletes and many of their peers who are in comparable positions in these sports. Well, and, and if you think about, if you think about it, um, you know, what, what message are we relaying to these? I, I would argue all, all athletes, but, 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 uh, but specifically uh, African-American male athletes that they're playing on a football team. They're not, allowed to do X, Y, or Z in order to try to better their, their financial situation while they're in college. And yet they're playing for a head coach, you know, someone like a Dabo Sweeney or a uh, uh, coach Fisher over in, uh, over at, um, uh, at A&M who are making seven or $8 million a year. You know, the, the notion of amateurism is really uh in many ways outdated. Do, do you agree with that? Is that sort of their perspective? Very antiquated. Yeah. They really, they pointed out, they pointed that out often. They talked about how it really is, is the epitome of hypocrisy to, to allow everybody else. If you really think about the, the, the madness of this, right. If everybody else is benefiting from the labor of these athletes, I mean, this is a very archaic, antiquated system and way of thinking and doing. And so it was not lost on these athletes in chapter two or many of the athletes in chapter three of the book as well. And so in this formal research I've done, as well as informal conversations I've had with athletes down through the years, they are very, very much opposed to this, this hypocrisy. No question. The last point that you bring up in chapter two is the the argument that these athletes do play a critical role in their own educational experiences and in their own educational outcomes. Why don't you talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, so one of the things that Harry Edwards, who was a pioneer, right, his his work really helped set the tone for the study of the intersections of race, sports, and education, which is the title of my book. And in fact, you know, it was a conversation I had when I first got the contract to do this book from Harvard Education Press. I had a conver- I had the fortune of spending some time with Harry Edwards and in a conversation we had on a, and I talk about this in the book, I was taking him back to the airport in Austin after he had given a keynote at Texas A&M and we got to talking about the book and, um, uh, you know, his work, he's a, he, he's a person who I have looked up to since my undergraduate studies, but his work really kind of set the tone. And one of the things he's talked about over the years is that black male athletes and their peers must make education an activist pursuit and that if they don't prioritize it, then nobody else will. So even though the focus of my book is on what's quote unquote wrong with the system, at the end of the day, even 
within the system, even in the midst of these structural arrangements and barriers to a true real education, the athletes still have to take it upon themselves to push back. Even as they are in it, they have to make a, to, to Edward's point, concerted effort to push back. And, and, and you'll see that in some of the narratives that are highlighted in the book. You know, readers will, will see how these athletes, even in the midst of the struggle to navigate such systems, they were still making education an activist pursuit. And I think that's the, the biggest take-home message there that I can, can put out there for, for listeners to think about. Okay. Okay. Now let's, let's transition over to chapter three. And, and again, there's a lot of really good information here. You, you talk in chapter three about quote, the dirty trick that is played on African and male, African American male athletes in regard to sport and social mobility. Now, I mean, there's a lot of folks who have written on this topic, but why don't you tell us what your perspective on dirty trick is what what do you mean by the dirty trick and uh what are some ways to challenge that dirty trick yeah so one of the black males actually i think it was the very first one that i featured in in chapter three discussed how how many black males from the time they were little boys have been led to believe by significant others in their lives so whether it's family members coaches teachers and others in the community that they were going to be professional athletes. And because of that, they did not take their education and development outside of athletic prowess seriously. And he actually used the word, he referred to this as the dirty trick. So this was his word, um, which, but this is also a term that my colleague and friend here at Texas A&M, sociologist Ruben May used in his book, Living Through the Hoop. So he did a, he did a book, wrote a book about high school basketball black male high school basketball players in Northeast Georgia, where he was an assistant coach. So it was really ethnography, but he refers to the dirty trick to describe the influence of media, coaches, community members, and individual athletes' mindsets and how it convinces young black males that sport participation is the most viable path to upward social mobility. And so I thought it was very interesting that this athlete that I was interviewing used that terminology. Now, I don't know if he was familiar, and I didn't ask him, with May's work and the work of others who have perhaps used this term, but I thought it was so fascinating that he specifically used this term. And so one of the things that Tyrone Howard, who was an education scholar, talks about is this notion of the athlete seasoning complex um, and where we have to move away from putting these athletes from the time they're four and five years old, these young black boys in particular, putting them, up, putting them on this path to believe that sport and play is the only way to get out of their condition or circumstance, you know, whether they're in, in difficult home upbringings or not. A lot of young black boys have been led to believe via this athlete seasoning complex and what William Roden refers to as a conveyor belt. So you see this in basketball with AAU in particular. Um, I talk about this a little bit in the book and how in many ways AAU has usurped high school uh, basketball. I mean, I've known situations where a lot of these young, talented athletes will focus strictly on 
summer ball and won't even play their junior or senior year with their high school basketball team as they prepare to go to the next level and play college basketball, for example. So um, one of the ways that we push back against this dirty trick is we have to have individuals, whether it's family members or, or educators in the school system, uh, really demonstrate for these athletes that you can dream, but as Edward says, dream with your eyes open to other possibilities and realities beyond sport and play. A lot of times it's difficult, right, to tell a young, talented uh, athlete that when they see the LeBron James of the world doing what they're doing uh, because of, of their athletic prowess, among other things. Well, and, and you know, one, of the, one other point that is brought up in this particular chapter is uh, you talk about what, what, what you term the gap in the delivery of information. And, and I found that very, very interesting. And here, here's why. Uh, if you look at a typical high school, college, or certainly professional football playbook, those things are incredibly complex incredibly complex. And yet the notion, it seems to be, the notion is that African-American student athletes uh, are sometimes funneled into, quote, easier areas because they don't, they're not capable of doing biology or chemistry or physics or something along those lines. But at the same time, these kids are handling incredibly complex material. So there's this gap in the delivery of information and the way that the information, the complex information is presented to them so that they can play on the football field or on the basketball court is done in a certain way. But yet that same type of, those same type of techniques are not utilized in order to try to get these young men to go into more you know, the STEM fields or areas like that. What What's your analysis of, of that situation? Yeah, that's a great, great question. So one of the things uh, I tell athletes, I address and work with black male athletes and other athlete groups, you know, um, here on this campus and, and at previous stops I've made in my career. And I always tell them, you know, yes, if you can master a playbook, you have what it takes to transfer those skills into other learning contexts. And so I've, I always start with that message. I, I address the group of uh, incoming freshman football players at Texas A&M this past summer. And out of the 20-something athletes that were there, the majority of them were black, young black males. And one of the first things I really impressed upon them is that don't ever, don't ever, any, don't ever, excuse me, don't, let, don't ever let anybody tell you that you're a dumb jock. You wouldn't be here if you were dumb. You're, you're much smarter than, than people may give, give you credit for. So that's, that's the first thing. And it's interesting because a few years ago, two colleagues and I, so one of my colleagues in ed psychology, educational psychology here at AM, and one in philosophy, we actually, submitted a grant to the NCAA to talk about innovative ways where we could have these athletes. So we have here at AM, there's a symbolic logics class 
that counts toward a math requirement. And one of the things that the philosophy professor noticed is that a lot of the athletes were taking this class toward this math requirement. And so he approached me, him and the ed psych professor approached me because they knew I studied uh, black male college athletes and they wanted to talk about ways that we could perhaps create a system where we work with the athletics department and the athletes in these classes to use some of the stuff that they were learning from the playbook model and transfer that to the symbolics logics class to uh, be successful in this particular class and other learning spaces beyond the playing field. And man, I tell you, we went after this grant for two years and the NCAA gave us great feedback and they really liked it. But unfortunately they didn't, it didn't make the final cut and they never funded it. But what that process told me was this is the type of innovative work that we as faculty and others who are concerned about the education of these athletes should be pursuing. So to your point, um, it's very important for us and others to realize that there is, like you say, this gap, as you said in the question, this gap between, man, what is it about them getting it in the context of the basketball court or the football field, but that same brilliance not being transferred to other walks of life? And that's where the disconnect is, and that's where the work needs to be done. Now, there's, there's countless examples of athletes who have taken that and athletes are featured in this book and, and have led successful lives beyond the gridiron or the hardwoods. So it's out there and there's examples and exemplars to be to, to be used. Well, you know, the, just this morning drive, driving into work, I was listening to Golick and Wingo and they were interviewing Chase Daniels, the, uh, the backup quarterback for the uh, for the Bears. And one of the things that they focused on was all the re- all that takes place during those forty seconds when the quarterback gets the 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 play call from the sideline when the quarterback talks to the uh, the the other ten players in the huddle and when the quarterback then goes to the uh, to the line of scrimmage and and determines whether the play that was called is going to work against the defense that you're seeing across. And all of this is taking place within, you know, 15 or 20 seconds. You know, every athlete in that huddle, no matter what their position is, has to make the adjustments and has to think on the fly and has to think critically in order to be able to perform their duties so that the play can be successful and you have to have an intellectual component to the athletic component. And that's what so many of these African-American athletes in, uh, are, are being shortchanged in. And, and, and I, I just really think that that is very, very important research. And, and you know, the, the models that you present in this particular chapter, I think, are very valuable students. Uh, scholars and just the public in general needs to understand that uh, these athletes are students first and that they should be able to 
pursue their goals and their dreams, no matter what area they want to pursue. And, but it's our responsibility to try to help make that possible. Yeah. One of the athletes, I even start this chapter off with a quote from Willis where he talked, he says, stop treating us like we're stupid. It takes a lot of intelligence to play sports, especially football. And so that's the message that we need to reinforce that, like you say, and even in chapter two, uh, the athletes talked about how, you know, you think about a, a, a kick returner or a punt returner where you're waiting for the ball. It's in the air. You're trying to figure out whether the fair catch and you got people coming at you full speed ahead, trying to take your head off. And you got to make quick decisions and process what's going on around you, like you say, in a split seconds. I mean, that takes a lot of intelligence. I think that's one of the things I've been intentional about in in, in reiterating the intelligence. Even if you had a struggle coming up through high school into college and your grades weren't what they should be or your SAT score was low or, or whatnot, you're a lot more intelligent than people give you credit for or perhaps you give your own self credit for. And I think that's the, the message that needs to resonate and, and, and be, be a spread going forward. Let's let's provide just a little bit more context to this because I, I really think that this is, you know, you, you bring up a lot of good points in the in the book, but I really think that this is to to me the, the the most critical issue. One of the things that you also talk about, or one of your interviewees talks about it at the end of chapter three, is he he says quotes the incompat quote the incompatibility of the process of human development versus academic sports capitalism. Um, we just had James Wiseman leave the University of Memphis after playing whatever it was, three or four games for them. And now he's preparing for the, um, for the NBA draft. Let's contextualize this idea of are universities doing a good job with African-American athletes in developing their human and intellectual potential versus the drive for the almighty dollar and making sure that your stadium and your basketball arena is jam-packed every single game or every single weekend or every single game during the season. How are universities faring in that regard? Are we selling these students short? And if we are, how can we try to resolve you know, change things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't want to paint a broad brush and say that all universities are equally as guilty of focusing more on, as I kind of mentioned earlier, the commercial development uh, at the expense of the human development. But it's interesting. I had years ago, I had a conversation with a, a person who was a in charge of academic support for athletics at a major big time university. And one of the things she said to me that really summed it up for me, she was like, John, the reason my job is extremely difficult in this capacity is because I'm in the business of human development, whereas my boss, the athletic director and his bosses are in the business of commercial development. And that really hit me. And there's a lot of, profound lessons to take from from that that statement right is that these institutions have become so wrapped up it makes me think about the old saying 
the love of money is the root of much wrongdoing and evil in many ways. And, and so certainly college sport, the athletics industrial complex has become a setting where the love of money sometimes blinds people who may be quote unquote good people into, as uh, one of the athletes in chapter three said, treating these athletes as dollars and only spectacles to be witnessed, not as human beings who, who could benefit from education and, 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 and development. And so um, he also talked about, I think it was Willis. He expressed his disdain for how many of these educational stakeholders in college sport try to take away the humanness of, of them because they pay bills in certain areas. And so it's a, it's a challenge for sure. As long as you have the money involved and the external influences that are driving some of the decisions, uh, we'll continue to, to, to struggle with this. I know it was, I think it was EJ, the last person I featured in this chapter who talked about that and how individuals, whether you're an athletic director or a person working in academic support, you're going to have to really grapple with and come to grips with your why. Why are you doing this? And, and is what you're saying, you believe, really in alignment with what you're doing? And so there's no easy answers to this because college sport has become so powerful and such a such a culturally embedded phenomenon in U.S. society and on these campuses that it's not going anywhere anytime soon. I kind of talk about this in chapter one where there's people who uh, talk about the need to totally reform and there's different reform groups who have their own ideas of how to deal with college sport. But from my perspective, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. And so the question becomes, how do we how do we grapple with this uh, at different levels to ensure that the education of these athletes is paramount? Okay. Okay. And, and you know what, I, I think that this particular line of conversation that we've had moves us in very effectively into your conclusion, chapter four of the book. I would argue that a very good summary of the research that you present in this work comes from page 154, where, where, and I'm quoting you, are black males recruited into these athletic programs that historically white colleges and universities truly to be truly educated? Well, you know, my question to you, John, is what ultimately is the answer to that question? And if you give me the answer that I anticipate you will, how can this be changed? Okay, so the literature and the narratives from this book suggest that these institutions seem to be far more interested in exploiting the athletic labor of these athletes more than anything else. Um, sure, you might have some programs and personnel or people within some of these institutions who genuinely care about the education of these athletes, but the hype, again, as I kind of mentioned earlier, the hyper-commercialized nature of the system makes even the most well-intentioned individuals capitulate to this ex to exploitive practices and behaviors. Ultimately, ultimately, Jimbo Fisher is more, more likely to be judged by the one and loss record rather than the graduation rate. 
Absolutely. And I don't even remember. This really broke my heart. I'm, I'm a big fan of Tyrone Willingham. He used to be the Notre Dame coach back in the early 2000s, right? And I remember they fired him, which was interesting. They let him go only after a couple of years. And one of the things that AD said at the time at the press conference when they fired him was that Tyrone Willingham did everything right from Sunday through Friday. He just didn't get it done enough on Saturday afternoons. And I thought that was quite powerful because it really speaks to, again, the overemphasis on the almighty dollar. And so how can this be changed? Well, one way to address this at the educational pipeline, right? I kind of talked about this a little earlier. If we can reach these athletes earlier on in their schooling, when they're going through the athlete seasoning complex, by the time that they're recruited, they'll be more, I think, conscientious. And you see some of that now. I mean, some of these athletes I'm meeting nowadays are coming into these institutions with a, a different mindset. I mean, there's many who are not. You know, there's many who are, you know, following the path of, of those who came before them in terms of overemphasizing sport and play. But there's others who, who are more well-read and, 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 and conscientious of the system and, and what they're about to get into. And so I think we really need to, to do a lot of the work there. So more of my research, for example, needs to extend into that pre-K through 12 context, um, or what they call the pipeline. Um, another way that it might be changed, though, and there's been talk about this in some of the literature, some of my colleagues, Joseph Cooper and colleagues have talked about this, is that we need to look at athletes who might consider other alternatives beyond these historically white college and universities. So whether that's them going straight to other uh, countries to play sports or whether they pursue education at historically black colleges and universities. I mean, there's there's been some rumblings about how many of the five-star recruits are starting to seriously consider different cultural contexts, uh, you know, because if you think about the history of, I know you're a history uh, professor, if you think about the history of black talent, before these institutions, these historically white institutions allowed black athletes into their spaces, all the, all the superstar athletes, the Jerry Rices of the world, the Walter Paytons, Strahan's, they were going to HBCUs. And there's a lot of talk about, well, what if these athletes, Jamel Hill has caught some heat in recent in recent months about suggesting that black athletes need to really consider uniting and going back to HBCU since they can't get much justice at historically white colleges and universities. I think that's a an argument and a conversation we have to take seriously when we talk about changing things if these black athletes are recruited not to be truly educated at these historically white institutions. But, but here, here would be, here would be my, and, and I, 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 I see the value of that, John, but here's, here's my counter to that. And, and I'd like, I'd like to see, to see what you think. If I'm a five-star athlete here in Texas and I can basically go wherever I want um, and I'm being offered an opportunity to play at 
the University of Texas or A&M or Texas Tech, where I will be in the Power Five conference spotlight. I will be on television. I will have scouts from the National Football League uh, watching me on a regular basis versus going to Prairie View. Um, how many students, how many of those five-star athletes, many of whom are going to be good, good students in the, you know, uh, acquit themselves very well in the classroom. How many students are going, uh, of those student athletes are going to take the, the path to go to A&M, uh, excuse me, to, to Prairie View, where they're never going to be on television. There's very going to be very little mention of them. Uh, there's going to be very little chatter about them in the, uh, uh, as far as going up to the next level, um, and possibly give up that opportunity. The possibility that they're going to go pro and be successful and be the next LeBron James or the next, uh, you know, star athlete in the NFL may not be particularly high, but, uh, the, the percentage, the probability is certainly going to be lower if I get my degree from, uh, go to go to play football at uh, Prairie View versus the University of Texas? Well, absolutely. And I think the athletes, even in that interview for this book, we talked a little bit. I didn't really highlight it much in the actual narratives, but you know, some of them talked about how they considered HBCUs, but to the point you make in the, in the counterpoint that you presented here, that's the reason they ended up at these big time institutions, historically white institutions, because of the visibility, the platform, et cetera. But my counter to the counter point that you made is that it only takes a few. And particularly if you think about the, the Fab Five phenomenon, let's say hypothetically you get a group of these athletes who decide, you know what, we're going to maybe – maybe sacrifice the bright lights of a, of a Texas A&M or, or, or whatnot to really build something special uh, here at a Prairie View or a Texas Southern or whatnot. Don't, don't you think, I mean, I think it's very possible that if we start to see these athletes go back to their roots, so to speak, that the money the visibility, the opportunities might also follow. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I can't predict that that'll happen, but certainly there may be individuals who will have to sacrifice um, for the big picture. And I mean, I don't know that, you know, you can ask an 18 to 22 year old to do that, but there may be, I mean, I'm, I'm somewhat optimistic that if things continue as they are in terms of the exploitation and the NCAA continues to, to find ways to keep intact this archaic system that you may see movement on that, on that front. And I think there's other scholars who, who would agree and who, who write about that and talk about that more so than even I do. Um, so I'd be curious to see in, in the years to come, if there's going to be some traction here to Jamel Hill's point and, and, and some of the scholars who are writing about the importance and perhaps the revitalization of HBCU athletics via the athletic talent that was cherry picked 
decades ago. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That is, that is a very good point. Um, finally, uh, John, is there any point uh, of your research that, and I know we've covered quite a bit of territory here, but uh, is there any point of your research that we haven't discussed that you want to just mention or, or flesh out a little bit before we finish up? Well, I mean, I was I was thinking about that when I looked at that question this morning. I was like, well, man, I'm thinking about the book, and is there anything? I guess the one thing I'll say is that for listeners and for those who may be interested in reading this book, um, I think we really need to dig and delve into the stories and words of athletes in the pages of not only this book, but we also need to continue to tell the stories and share the perspectives of countless others whose powerful stories have gone unheard. So I, I highlight 12 particular voices in this book, um, but there are many, many others who need to be heard. I think that was one of the things I talked about early on when I, I talked about the rationale for, yes, there's a need to focus on black males as well as other athletes. I mean, because one of the initial pushbacks I got was, well, why not focus on all athletes? And for me, this first solo author book project was personal and I had to write about what it was that I know and what it what it was that I am passionate about. And so for me, I guess the final point I'd make about my research is that these stories, these perspectives, these counter narratives of these athletes are so crucial and important to the dialogue that we have around college sport reform and, and any type of success we're going to have going forward. And so I think I'd leave you with that particular point is that as you read the book or engage with the book, really pay attention to the narratives, the perspectives, the experiences, the trials and tribulations of these black males that are featured in it. Okay. Okay. Well, John, uh, we've taken a lot of your time. I want to thank you for visiting with me today. Uh, Again, the name, the title of the book is Race, Sports, and Education, Improving Opportunities and Outcomes for Black Male Collegiate College Athletes. It's a fascinating read. It's a very timely subject, and I really want to thank you for taking the time to visit with us today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to interview me and allow me to highlight some of the key points uh, from this work. I know one of the things I will say before we get off here is I didn't, we didn't get to the question about how I came, the origins of me writing this book. And I guess that would have been one of the things I would have shared last question. Um, and so I guess I'll share that here if you don't mind. Yeah. So, you know, it was really during my master's program, I, I took a position as a graduate assistant for a summer university bridge program at Michigan State University. And a part of this program was football and basketball athletes, and most of them were black males. And so I was assigned to work specifically with this group. And it was during that time where I began to see, I had just come from working in the NFL, actually, as a football operations intern for the Jacksonville Jaguars. And so I came back with that experience under my belt. And so I started working with these athletes. And it was during that time where I began to ask 
critical questions about what I saw going on with the culture, structures, policies, and practices in these institutions, the NCAA, these athletic conferences, Big Ten, and the athletic departments themselves. And so that's what really spawned my interest in this particular topic and book and my pursuit of a PhD at Ohio State in sport management and the work I'm doing today in this book. What's what's next for you? Well, that's a great question. One of the things I want to do is continue to document and highlight the narratives and stories of these athletes. So this book is just the beginning. These 12 narratives are just beginning to scratch the surface of what I hope to do in the, in the years ahead in terms of collecting more narratives and, and taking what's in this book and publishing it and sharing it with, for example, with school districts around the country, the K-12 school districts, administrators on, on college campuses around the country, and certainly at academic conferences and in different publications, really, really sharing these narratives and powerful words of these athletes. Good luck to you. And, and again, uh, you know, uh, as, a, as a historian who makes his living telling these type of stories, uh, these stories of black athletes need to need to be told. Uh, go out and get as get as many of them uh, down and out to the public as possible. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. Thank you very much, John. All right. Take care.